Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email. We are changing that, <laughs> okay? Up until now, I did, you know, I did never imagined how that my channel would grow the way that it has over the years and that um, that I would be receiving so many questions from you guys, really, really amazingly good ones in many cases. And uh, so I've got this very long queue of questions that I haven't even gotten to. Sometimes people have asked me questions that I just really don't have the answer to at all, and so it just kind of sits there or, I, you know, I'm just not going to get to it. And so I've had some in my queue for quite a while. But, um, but it's getting to be now where the number of comments that come on my channel in response to my videos and my Critical Clips channel, by the way, which is also now getting comments, and it's just hit a thousand subscribers. Thank you very much for those of you who have subscribed to my Critical Clips channel. Um, it's daily. I'm putting out content there Monday through Friday. So uh, if you're interested in little short snippets of answers to questions, many of which come from my Q&A shows, but also from my other videos, um, then subscribe to that channel. So uh, that's also out there. But anyway, um, with all the inflow that I'm getting from those and the emails as well and other places, Twitter and, you know, sometimes people Facebook message me questions and stuff, it's just a little bit too much. And so uh, what I want to do is in order to streamline the process and also make it easier, well, I don't know if it makes it easier for you guys, <laughs> that might just be marketing, but um, in order to make it easier for me, <laughs> I want to set it up now where we are just going to be emailing me questions at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. That email is going to remain active. I will be receiving those into my inbox and I will cut and paste them and put them into my queue and uh, get them on the lineup as quickly as I can. You, If you do put questions in the comments, it's not that I won't ever see them, because I'm not going to ignore the comments, but I can't guarantee that I'm going to go looking through the comments like I have been up until now. So if you really, really want to get a question to me, just email it to me. AskChrisShelton at gmail.com. And I also wanted to plug my podcast this week like I usually do. This one was just total fun. If you are at all interested in Star Wars, where it's going, where it's been, um, then this is the podcast for you. We just kind of had fun with it. Me and uh, Chris Crimey, he is also a podcaster and he has been on this show. He is a Scientology watcher too. He's done podcasts and interviews with uh, former Scientologists. So he and I just had fun riffing on Star, Star Wars and... Um, and I was actually kind of pleased. I knew I wasn't going to get as much response on that as I do on the other kind of contents I put up. Totally understandable. I, I totally get that. Um, but I was surprised, actually, that I got as much response on it as I have so far, at least within the first 24. And sometimes it's really interesting how podcast views and uh, interaction and interchange and stuff will grow over time. So anyway, I wanted to put that out there. And then finally... I know I've got, I'm putting a lot here in the intro, but I want to smash it all in. Uh, I have not mentioned this in a long time, and for new subscribers as well as old-time subscribers, there is merch available on this channel. Uh, their link is below at Spreadshirt.com. Um, I have created many different logos and, and shirts and things, and I've got more coming. Um, lots of great ideas always coming my way, and so I want to uh, put those together. But there's quite a few that I've already put together. This is an example of one, and I've got screenshots here of others. So anyway, if you're uh, at all interested in hats, mugs, cups, you know, as well as shirts and hats and stuff, it's all there. So you can check that out at the link below. Now, finally, let's get on with your questions this week. 
Thomas Zarkin. An article in Wikipedia states, OT3 also deals with Incident 1, set four quadrillion years ago. Did Hubbard really write or say that such an incident occurred four quadrillion years ago? If so, how does an OT3 reconcile that with the fact that the universe, as most students have learned by the time they graduate from high school, is slightly under 14 billion years old? Well, you see, Thomas, for an OT3, time takes on a different meaning. And for, so for an OT3, you know, operating in, in their version of space and time, um, the, uh, the year will uh, seem like a year to them, but it's actually a billion years to us. Just kidding. I'm totally kidding. That was a total bullshit answer. Uh, here's, the, here's the real one. In uh, Hubbard's lectures, okay, Hubbard started lecturing on uh, the phenomena of matter, energy, space, and time in 1951, 52 especially, is when he really started going to town on this material. Uh, that was a long time ago in terms of uh, advances in physics and whatnot, but we've known that the universe is, uh, is very, very, you know, is, has the age that it has for quite some time, and Hubbard was aware of that too. And Hubbard's lectures, he attempted to become an authority figure on physics, and in fact even said that he had taken and, uh, he said he had taken the very first class in atomic and molecular physics or phenomena, phenomena in, um, in college. And that's, that's true. What he never told his audiences is that he failed that class uh, miserably. So uh, I think he either got a D or an F in it. I mean, he just definitely did not successfully complete the requirements of that course. Yet years later, with no internet to fact check him, you'd have to really go out of your way to fact check Hubbard back in, 19, in the 1950s. So uh, when he claimed that he had taken this class and he was an authority on these, on these topics and that his um, source of data was not only his college education, but also the research that he had done in Dianetics and Scientology. And for Scientologists at that time, this had an air of legitimacy to it because by 1952, uh, a great chunk of 1951 and, and, and all of 1952 was filled up with research and lecturing on the subject of what Hubbard referred to as the whole track. The whole track, right, if you have, in Dianetics, you have a time track. That's the, that's the period of consecutive moments of your life. But the whole track is the, is the, all the incidents and moments of time that occurred for your entire life cycle as a Thetan in this universe. And that goes back four quadrillion years because that is the time in Incident 1, according to Hubbard at OT3, when Thetans first entered the physical universe. He doesn't say necessarily that that is the creation of the physical universe, but it's implied because he, of course, later on in Scientology materials said very, very, very distinctly that this whole universe, everything you experience is a creation of you as a spiritual entity and all the other spiritual entities that are here in this universe, this playground of bodies and planets and universes, all of this is a, is a self-generated illusion that all the Thetans who are in this world or universe agree is real and they've agreed to all the particulars of it and so therefore it's real, right? Now never mind 
the thousand questions I'm sure are occurring to you right now on this, Hubbard didn't answer those questions, okay? You're just kind of left with this idea that the that reality is agreement, and at a certain level that's true, but at the physical universe level that is not true. That's not how reality works. It doesn't it doesn't work because we all agree it works, and that's what makes objective reality. That is more a, a, a workable definition for um, a mental understanding or a mental reality of the of the universe is when you get into agreement and stuff. So, anyway, in terms of objective reality, this was what Hubbard was applying to this, and he said that. He got this information uh, from his college education, which he sort of implied he was this, you know, genius in school. Uh, well, kind of. Um, and he uh, said that it had come from the whole track research they'd been doing. Okay, that's where I've been trying to go with this, is that he had been auditing him. He had been getting audited. His wife had been getting audited. He had been auditing all these other people. Other people had been auditing people and giving him the notes from those uh, sessions. And they were coming up with this track of incidents that occurred over this long period of time, and they had dated them using the e-meter. Okay, that's the scientific evidence for all of this is the e-meter. I know what you're thinking, and you're right, but that at the time, in 1952, it was a machine. It had dials. They responded. You know, when you asked questions, the needles moved, so that must mean something. And Hubbard's explanation, of course, for that was that there was a mental charge connected with these times in the past, these incidents. And Hubbard then claimed that not only was that proof, but also the fact that these same incidents were coming up from one to another to another person. And if that were true, that would be compelling evidence that maybe something's going on there. If, if Joe and Nancy and Bill, who have never met, never talked, or interacted in any way, are all coming up with memories of something that happened 14 million years ago, and the details are the same from one to the next to the next, that might be interesting. It certainly would at least provoke further investigation. But Hubbard you know, fixed the game because his style of auditing people was to ask them very leading questions. And if you, you can actually go back in the materials of, of, of Dynetics and Scientology and they have transcripts of Hubbard auditing people back during this time period. And what you find when you go through those transcripts are tons and tons of leading questions. Hubbard's asking them about, you know, okay, where's the console? Uh, are you in a spaceship? You know, because these kinds of questions are, are priming the person, right? We already know in, in, in scientific research that these kind of things are absolutely a no-no. And you can see for yourself. You don't have to take my word for it. Um, these are online. You can find them. They're the, in the Research and Discovery series or volumes. Um, and there are even some lectures of Hubbard, uh, recorded lectures of Hubbard auditing, all through the 1960s. And every time you hear Hubbard audit somebody else, one of the things that Scientologists would often discuss is how his auditing was so smooth and so wonderful. I mean, you had all that. But you also had sometimes some of us would sort of scratch our heads going, we can't audit like that. We're, we're prohibited from auditing like that. You can't ask people questions like that in an auditing session. We have very 
specific questions or very, you know, specific ways of putting questions together. But Hubbard was always breaking his own rules in his auditing, and leading questions was one of the prime ways he was doing that. So he is the one who primed these people for having the same experience. You see where I'm going with this. So obviously his research trail, quote unquote, cannot be trusted because it's not legitimate. Um, but Hubbard thought it was legitimate, and it met the standard of evidence for Scientologists. So they're willing to believe that a little box with little dials on it that measures skin resistance is more accurate than the telescopes and astro you know and astro and uh, astronomical calculations and you know um, all of that work that gets done in ast in, uh, in astronomy and um, and physics. You know, science, real science, right, based on actual observations, verified by others, peer-reviewed, I mean, all this stuff that, that, you know, scientists have to go through in order to get their findings agreed upon and accepted. Hubbard didn't want anything to do with that. He, he thought that he castigated that. He thought that all that was ridiculous and scientists didn't know what they were talking about. And he specifically said, just to put a cherry on the top of this whole thing and, and wrap up this question, <laughs> um, he specifically said, if you're familiar with carbon dating and how carbon dating is used to uh, date how much carbon is in organic material and you can get a date based on the half-life of, of the carbon atom uh, from those calculations, Hubbard said that they, those calculations are based on an assumption of how much carbon was in the universe to begin with and those assumptions were wrong. So all the dating that is done with carbon dating, he invalidated. He said, nope, things are much, much older than they think they are. And they are, all the dating systems are totally wrong. Okay, and he said, he just said that flat out. I've, I've never forgotten that piece of information I've learned from him. Uh, so that is sort of the way he talks to Scientologists to convince them that he's the one who knows what he's talking about and all of science doesn't. There you go. Kevin Zay. I find the hypocrisy of a Scientologist playing the part of a heroine in a series involving an oppressive regime to be blindingly obvious. Can you explain why it is that Elizabeth Moss can't see the similarities between the antagonists in The Handmaid's Tale and the very real, very oppressive cult that she is a part of? I assume this has something to do with the indoctrination she went through or is still going through. And Tyler Simmons. I hear a lot of far-right Christians whining about socialism and communism and oppose it, but support a theocratic government, and yet claim to be anti-government. How do they get over this cognitive dissonance? It doesn't make any sense. They seem to hate big government when it suits their agenda, but when it does, they suddenly support big government. It really bothers me when the religious right is blatantly hypocritical about their stance on government policy. Despite being a left-wing person, there are some stances of the GOP that I agree with, such as guns and taxes, but when the fundamentalism and homophobia is bundled in with these positions, it is not worth voting for these guys. I'm not a fan of the Democrats either, but they don't piss me off as much as the GOP because at least the Democrats are not ramrodding you with religion like some segments of the GOP do. How can they claim to be for freedom but turn around and be anti-choice and anti-gay marriage? All right, so this I am not going to get into the politics of, of your question, Tyler, because the fact of the matter is that everything you've asked about with the GOP applies just as much to the Democrats, like literally just as much, because people are people.
and the way they think is the same. Uh, what they think can be wildly, wildly different, but the way they go about thinking and the way they go about making decisions and choices and how biases are formed and how prejudices are formed, same, okay? Um, there's different mechanisms for it in the brain. There's different ways that these things get put together, but it's, it's all the same to same to same to same from one human to the next, okay? So, um, you know, so as many people as are getting it wrong on the right, well, there's just as many people over on the left who are doing the same stuff, okay? And that's all, and this doubly applies for people who are in destructive cults where they've ratcheted the volume of these biases up to 11, right? And you get then extremism. So let's just, so I'm going to address all of this in one go here, okay? You're asking basically how it is that somebody cannot see something that you consider very obvious in their life. And the reason for that, of course, is because their life is their creation and it's their perception. And perception is where all of this starts taking, this is where all bets are off because the way that another person views their own life is going to be radically different from how you, as an outside, somewhat objective observer of their life, at least a different observer, objectivity isn't really the important part here, but as a different observer outside of them, you're able to see things about their life that they can't see. We all know this happens, but why does it happen? Because of perception and because of how our brains work and our, how we think and come to our decisions about things, once you have accepted the goodness of something or the beneficial aspects of a thing, it will be very hard, it will be actually harder to overcome that view, that bias that you now have towards that thing in order for you to be able to see that maybe there's something wrong with it. This is everybody, okay? And, and, and it's all just a matter of degree. So if you're really invested in something like Elizabeth Moss or any Scientologist is in their Scientology beliefs, then that, you, it's, it's like this, your, your perception of that thing has labels and, and things connected to it, I guess I, I could describe it that way, that are uh, good, beneficial, wholesome, moral, ethical, like when you think of these concepts, this subject comes to mind. In the, in the case of Scientology, sci Scientologists rather, Scientology is what comes to mind as the most ethical group on the planet, the most beneficial, the ones who have the technology, not just a faith, but a technology to save mankind. These are the things you think of when Scientology comes to mind. So this would be, of course, positioned in your mind as the polar opposite to the antagonists of The Handmaid's Tale, the bad guys of the story. Scientology is already positioned in Elizabeth Moss's mind as the good guys, the white hats, the people who can do no wrong, and the organization that is the only organization on the planet that is actually trying to do something about the conditions of man and how bad mankind is, is, right? That's how she thinks about it. So she would never look at that and then look at her script of The Handmaid's Tale or the book or have talks about it and position this really good, wonderful thing with all this awfulness. That It would never even occur to her to do that. 
because that's how she sees things. Okay, so, um, and the, and I said, this becomes this, this, this misperception, you could say, or this inability to question or doubt or criticize this is ratcheted up in destructive cults, right, in extremist groups. And, and, uh, and so if you laid all this out on a spectrum, then you see the, the, the volume or the quality of this belief becomes more and more solid or more and more, you know, extreme to the person where it's harder and harder and harder to question that that person could ever do wrong. In the same way that um, you could have um, battered spouses who would do nothing but sing the praises of their, of this, of their husband or their, or their wife who's, who's beaten on them. Um, you know, uh, I guess Stockholm Syndrome. I mean, there's various terms, various categories that people have, labels that people have tried to put on this. But in the end, it really comes down to how a person thinks about things. And, um, and so the hypocrisy, when you say to somebody like that, you start having a conversation with them or uh, an interaction on social media or something, you're like, you're a hypocrite. I can't believe how hypocritical you are. How can you not see this? And the person is sitting there going, I'm not a hypocrite. I have no idea what you're talking about. You're the crazy one. Stop calling me names, right? And all that does is build up more and more walls, of course, and is going to prevent the person from being able to see the hypocrisy that they're literally sitting right in the middle of. Um, so the only way to get through that, you know, that, that sort of fortress of thought that the person will build up against you is to be invited in. And the only way to do that, is, of course, is to have rational discourse with the person at a level where they're not feeling like they need to be defensive in order to talk about it. So anyway, uh, that's a lot there. Um, I think I managed to sidestep some of the politics this time because <laughs> this is everything I said is fully applicable to every single human being on the planet. There you go. Paula, after what I saw that Scientology does to critics, I'm scared even to make a comment in your YouTube channel with my full name and that's why I write to your email address. How is it that Scientologists believe that they are working towards a world without criminality while they are doing criminal things themselves? Okay, thanks for the question, Paula. And I want to say straight up that the reason I made the change on the questions, by the way, was not because of this reason. You, no one has any reason to fear retaliation from the Church of Scientology because they asked me a question on my YouTube channel. Scientology's like pretty crazy in terms of how detail-oriented they are about tracking connections of suppressive people, but they're not that detail-oriented, that they're taking down the name of every single person. I have had probably at this point, hundreds of thousands of people comment on my videos. So uh, I severely doubt that anybody in the Church of Scientology is keeping records of the names of all those people, much less trying to pursue them in some nefarious way. So you really don't have anything to worry about there. Really, I, I don't know if I've said that before in the past, so I wanted to kind of lay that out. Okay, Paula, now as far as your question goes, um, Oh, everything I just said in my last answer applies fully here in terms of how people think about things and bias themselves, uh, you know, favorably or unfavorably towards groups they might be involved in or subjects or topics that they think are important. But then there's another thing on top of this, and you, because you're specifically asked about criminality, and Scientologists are absolutely, positively convinced that criminals are, by definition, people who are anti-Scientology. 
If you're pro-Scientology, then almost by definition that means that you cannot be a criminal. And it's only if you betray Scientology and turn on them that you become the criminal. And it, see, it doesn't matter what you do while you're in Scientology. That's not, if you do anything with, within the world of Scientology, it could be bad, it could be breaking the law even, it could be by definition criminal to the society, but that doesn't mean within the world of Scientology that you're a criminal. Especially if what you're doing, this is the really key part, if what you're doing forwards or helps or assists Scientology somehow, then what's the problem? <laughs> right? I mean, if you're breaking the laws of the land, but you're not breaking Scientology justice codes, and, you know, obviously you're not killing people or something, although, if you were to kill somebody who was against Scientology, right, I'm not saying that anybody in Scientology would be okay with that. I, I, I don't think they do, but I'm, I'm using an extreme example to demonstrate the point that uh, Hubbard has written, you can get away with killing somebody if you have stats up, if your statistics are rising, right? I mean, there's a lot of um, emphasis put in Scientology on having your statistics rising. And for public Scientologists who aren't holding a job where they keep a statistic, they're considered upstat, their statistics are going up, if they are bringing people into Scientology, if they are doing things to forward Scientology, and in the case of the Office of Special Affairs, if they're working or volunteering for OSA and they're doing dirty deeds uh, that's for Scientology, for OSA, then that's considered a good thing, not a criminal thing. You see, black becomes white. This is how it happens. And so uh, criminal actions are condoned and even encouraged in some cases. And that's, that's how it happens. Of course, if you get caught, <laughs> well, that's on you, buddy, you know, and of course the church didn't have anything to do with that and you're going to get thrown under the bus. And unfortunately, for those who have been thrown under the bus by Scientology, most of the time they're okay with that too. Because I mean, by the time you get to a place as a Scientologist, clearly day one and day two of walking into the church is not the day that they're going to be encouraging you to do criminal stuff, right? You're going to be pretty deeply committed, pretty... You know, you're going to have passed some tests, right? You're going to be a trusted person. And, um, and probably doubly so now. Like, I'm sure they really, really want people who are lifetime committed to Scientology to be doing some of the nasty stuff. Uh, or they just hire it out. But for the Scientologists who are doing it, they're so committed that they know that if they were to get caught, they'd take the fall. They would martyr themselves for it. And I actually witnessed this myself in person with Scientologists. I saw Scientologists literally say out loud that they were willing to go to jail for Scientology. They would martyr me. Please make me the martyr. Like I saw a guy volunteering to do this. So, um, so I'm not speaking from theory on this one. I've I've watched it happen right in front of me, and uh, and it's it's pretty wild to see, and it's disturbing to think about in retrospect. You know, at the time. Kind of made sense to me. I wasn't standing there watching this going, well, that doesn't make any sense. I thought going to jail, at the, at the point that I saw a lot of this, uh, I was pretty young into Scientology. So I was, you know, I was still able to at least question in my mind. <laughs> but I wasn't about to bring it up to anybody and they're like, hey, this guy's nuts. You know, because I was like, wow, he's really committed. I mean, that was kind of my thinking. So you see how this kind of progresses.
All right, so there, there you go. James Esposito. I have often heard that Scientology does not want David Miscavige to testify in a deposition and will typically settle a case before it gets to that point. What I want to know is why. If Scientology is so adept at stretching the truth and consistently telling lies, why would it make any difference whether or not he is deposed if he's not going to be telling the truth anyway? Is it simply a fear of him possibly being indicted on perjury charges? No, I don't think it's fear of that so, I mean, I do think it's fear of that, but I don't think it's that so much as the fact that when you're in deposition, you can be asked anything at all. I mean, there's stuff that is nothing to do with the case that you are being deposed for that I have watched depositions being done where they've just gone into, especially with by Scientology lawyers, where they have dived into, okay, let's say I was being deposed. Let's say that I was in a, in a case against Scientology and, I, and they were going to depose me as part, of the, as part of the discovery process, right? So what do you think Scientology lawyers are going to ask me about? Everything and anything they want to my sexual practices, my masturbatory practices, how much I drink, how much I smoke pot, how much I eat, what my schedule is like, how do I sleep, when do I sleep. They can ask me any of that stuff. And I'm under oath. I have to answer truthfully. And I have my lawyer there and he might protest, but those protests are only lodged and then it goes to the judge after the fact of the deposition. So it's a wide open forum. And when you have lawyers who actually know what they're doing, especially with somebody like David Miscavige, they could have him wrapped up for days, asking him all kinds of stuff. And when you have all this on video and you're lying, I don't care how good you are, you're going to get tripped up. They're going to catch you out, right? And he knows that. He knows that because in a deposition, David Miscavige is not talking to, you know, extremist, enraptured Scientologists who, can't, who are, you know, hanging on his every breath. That's not who he's talking to in a deposition. He is talking to people who are hostile to him, who want answers from him. As far as he's concerned, they're very hostile to him. And he doesn't want anything to do with that. He, doesn't, he does not do well under pressure like that. And it's very, very, he's not in the habit of it either. He hasn't been under that kind of pressure in, a, in, a, in an environment that he has not been fully in control of in many, many years. And there's a reason for that. It's because he's scared shitless to, and to have to answer for his crimes. And he should be because he's guilty of a lot of crimes. So, you know, that's the problem there. Uh, and it is a big problem for him. So he will do anything to avoid getting deposed. Um, you know, of course, if, you know, from the deposition stuff, as you mentioned, you, know, you might get indicted on perjury or, or other things. Yeah, there's, there's definitely all of that. He certainly is not in a position at this point where he can go with an innocent heart to a deposition, answer all of their questions, guilt-free, totally honestly, and expect to walk out of that room a free man, <laughs> right? That's not what's going to happen. So he cannot go into a situation like that and just tell the truth. It would be impossible for him to do that. Uh, and remain a free man. So he knows he'd have to lie. And he'd have to lie bigly. Huge. Okay? Like wall to wall. And he's not capable of keeping up that kind of deception for that extended period of time that he'd be involved in a process like that. 
So that's, that's the reason for that. I hope that makes sense. And if it doesn't, you know, ask me more about it. Patrick Gavin. Ascending to power has no policy. Miscavige's rise is tough to understand other than just doing it, because no one knew what to do. Could it be that simple? It seems he just said, I am in charge. Okay, of course, here you're referring to the epiphany moment David Miscavige had where he realized that power is something you assume, I think is what he said, right? Oh, power is assumed, right? And suddenly he was very, very interested in assuming power. It's a lot more complicated than it was just that simple of, oh, I'm in charge now. There was a lot of people that David Miscavige had to remove from the picture, and it took him quite some time to do it. And I have only, I mean, I've talked with a number of people who were around and involved and were, you know, hands-on during that time and watched him carry out his, his uh, executions, so to speak, you know, his getting rid of people. Um, and it was a slow, kind of gradual process for them, right? And of course, keep in mind that Sea Org are 24-7. So when things are happening, we might think things are happening very quickly, but in the Scientology world, when every day is, you know, an 18-hour day kind of thing, and, you know, time takes on a little bit of a different meaning. So anyway, my, you know, because all of this did go down within the space of a, just a few years, but it was a few years. It wasn't like one day... He wasn't in charge, and then the next day he was the overlord. It didn't. It, it didn't go that way. It was. A, it was a slow, gradual process, but it was definitely a process that he was dedicatedly moving forward. And that actually is the interest, most interesting part, because there are individuals, and I won't go into other names, although I could, um, who are so bold in their in not having manners, in not having, in not following regular expected, you know, policy and guidelines, uh, or how you do things, or how, or what the expectations of things are within a culture or society. There are people who specialize in not following those rules and just literally ignoring them, treating it as though they never existed, that they have the perfect right to do exactly what they are doing as off the rails as what they are doing might be, but they just go into it fully, confidently, uh, you know, just balls to the wall, this is what we're going to do now, sort of thing. And everybody just kind of stands there going, what? Because it's such a violation of the mores, the agreements of the group, that everybody just, you don't predict that somebody would act that brazenly. That that boldly, you're just not, you don't know what to do when that's right in your face. You don't have any earlier thing in your time, in your life, to draw on of how to deal with this. Because this is so unusual. It's something no, that people don't regularly do. And this is one of the ways that these outrageous, let's call them outrageous personalities, get away with what they get away with, right? And this is cult leaders, this is politicians, this is celebrities, this is, you know, people who push boundaries. Sometimes this is comedians, but comedians rarely have ill intent or are doing things maliciously. Comedians are doing things because they want people to laugh. And that and laughing and, and humor, of course, comes from surprise. So they say they are always pushing the envelope. But with politicians or with cult leaders or, you know, business people or celebrities who are 
you know, kind of pushing this for their own reasons, for their own self-aggrandizement, you have them pretty much boldly ignoring or, or flagrantly violating rules that, that, that other people would never even think to do that, right? And this is the way that boundaries can be pushed in a good way, but it's also a way that the, the, that the, the, the normal structures of our society can actually be broken down and we can be taken advantage of because of our inability to deal with something that we've never dealt with before, especially in the moment. You know, this thing is happening right in front of you. It's playing out and there's everybody there watching this happen, wondering, you know, everybody individually is wondering, what, what? And they're looking at other people and they're like, what? But nobody's standing up. Nobody's stepping up and going, no, this isn't right. This isn't going to happen. Nobody does that because people are pretty timid, right? And they're unsure of themselves, especially in a group situation. There's so many dynamics at play here, right? So anyway, so this is, this is uh, some of what was behind Miscavige's rise to power, taking it back directly to this. He flagrantly violated rules and people didn't know what to do. And he, he assumed power. He assumed that he was in charge and soon he was because he just walked all over anybody who got in his way. And he did it in a, at first, it wasn't so brazen. It wasn't so bold. It was roundabout. It was covert. It was allies. It was, you know, it was kind of survivor, right? It, I, you know, the island thing. It was like forming temporary alliances and Miscavige worked hand in hand with Pat Broker. If, and if you watch my Scientology organizational madness video, uh, it breaks all of this down, and I talk about who that guy was. And Miscavige was in touch with him. Broker and Miscavige had this little tight-knit conspiracy, and Broker was directly connected to L. Ron Hubbard. So, um, so there was, you know, th this, was, this was part of what was going down. And that is how Miscavige got in charge. So um, anyway, so it's, yes, it is simple. It is, it is in a way, from a certain point of view, it was as simple as Miscavige saying, I'm now in charge. But the particulars of that I wanted to kind of address because it's not just that easy. You know, there was a lot of uh, details in that devil. <laughs> there you go. It is time for Flash Answers. Ben Asselstein, what percentage of the Sea Org are pre-clear? Most of them. I actually could not answer this question. I will say that uh, with precision, I can't answer this question. I'll say, um, I will guesstimate 80% of the Sea Org, I think, are not OT, or are not clear yet. And that's a, that's a guess, but it's an educated one. The DOIG. I know that some businesses use Hubbard's WISE system, but do any businesses pay for individual employees to go up the bridge slash audit and or do Scientology courses? Yes, some businesses will pay for courses. Uh, they do not pay for auditing. That is a very, very, very rare practice. Sometimes you might see, I think I can recall one or two instances of somebody getting like say a big bonus or something and getting an L delivered to them, like at Flag or something, they, the, the company buys them a bunch of auditing. Um, but that's very, very, very rare. You're not supposed to have other people buying you auditing. It's out exchange, you see. You're supposed to pay for it yourself. Smoker. 
I grew up in a decently scientific household, dad an engineer, mom a math teacher. Does it bother anyone else that Hubbard and subsequently all Scientologists say space and time instead of space-time? The term, the fabric of space-time, originated 25 years before Einstein was born by William Clifford in the 19th century. So the fact that Scientology's mantra is matter, energy, space, and time is glaringly unscientific. Does that bother anyone else? Not really. <laughs> I think you'd have to be a scientist to make those kind of uh, distinctions, but that's just me, you know? Uh, of course, you're talking to somebody who was raised in Scientology, so for me, space and time is a thousand percent normal. I, I, it doesn't even occur to me that there's something wrong with that uh, terminology until you asked your question. And now that you've asked it, now I'm going to have that in my head. So thank you. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, yeah, it doesn't bother any Scientologists. I don't know if it bothers anybody else. Nobody else has brought it up. Okay, guys, thank you very much for all of the questions. They were great. I really enjoy answering them, and I hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoy doing this. Um, again, I'll remind you, check out the links below in the description section on this video because um, there's some good links to other places like the Critical Clips channel for one and my merch site for another. And of course, you can always sign up on Patreon if you enjoy what I am doing and find it entertaining, informative, and educational. Thank you very much for coming around. I will see you next week. Bye-bye.